You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone, and welcome to History of the Second World War, Episode 72, The Munich Agreement, Part 4, Plan Z. One of the major events leading up to the Munich Agreement was a series of two personal conversations between the British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain and Adolf Hitler. The original idea for these conversations originated in London during discussions that would occur in late August. These conversations would occur between Chamberlain and his inner circle of advisors and ministers, with Chamberlain describing the idea as, quote, unconventional and daring, which was somewhat accurate, I guess. The concept of one national leader jumping on an airplane and going to have direct conversations to discuss a discrete issue with another national leader with very little warning or preparation was something that was not really done at this point in history. Chamberlain hoped that it would be just the kind of gesture that would cause the ongoing negotiations between the Czechoslovakian government and the Sudeten Germans to be shaken from their ongoing deadlock and to a resolution. Henderson, the British ambassador in Berlin, would be informed of the idea when he was in London in late August, and it would be given the codename Plan Z, or, or Z, depending on where you're at in the world. The visit was not going to happen immediately, and instead London would communicate with Henderson when it felt that the plan should be activated, at which point Henderson would work directly with the German government to determine if they were interested and then work out the details. It would then be activated in, on the night of September 13th, when a message would be sent to Henderson in Berlin, which he was to then forward to the German government. It would say in part, quote, In view of the increasingly critical situation, I propose to come over at once to see you with a view of trying to find a peaceful solution. I propose to come across my air and am ready to start tomorrow. Please indicate earliest time at which you can see me and suggest a place of meeting. I should be grateful for a very early reply. End quote. This episode will be all about the events of early September 1938, which connect the genesis of the plan to meet with Hitler and then the eventual message that I just quoted that set up the meeting. Because in the two weeks between those two points in times, there would be some very important developments. We will begin once again in Prague with the ongoing negotiations. As we discussed last episode, during the last days of August, the British mission had been working with the government in Prague and the Sudeten German party on what would eventually be called the Third Plan. This was yet another attempt to bridge the gap between the two groups, with the goal of meeting all of Hinlein's terms as outlined in the Karlsbad demands. These were another round of real concessions by the Czechoslovak government as well, to the point where even the lead representative of the Sudeten German party would say, quote, they could not be rejected out of hand. While these conversations were happening, the British mission suggested that Henlein travel personally to visit Hitler in person, with the idea that Henlein could help to sell the new plan to Hitler and get the support of the German government. This was a great plan, if you believed in one basic assumption, that Henlein wanted the negotiations to succeed, 
Because if he did, and if Hitler also wanted them to succeed, then having both of their support would essentially seal the deal. Of course, neither of these men wanted the negotiations to work. Hinlein would agree to make the trip, though, under the condition that it was made very clear to everyone involved that he was only traveling at the direct request of the British representatives. He would even say that he wanted, wanted this guarantee and this, this statement so that he would not be accused of taking orders from Hitler. These statements were, of course, completely hilarious because that's exactly what he was doing. So Hinlein would travel to Germany as something of an official representative of the British government, where then he would then meet with Hitler for two days. During these meetings, Hinlein would gain the completely correct impression that Germany was on the path to war, but he was also told that negotiations must continue with Czechoslovakia to make it appear that Germany and the Sudeten Germans were making an honest attempt to find a peaceful solution. It was important that they keep up that facade for as long as possible. Meanwhile, back in Prague, something that had a chance of completely derailing the German plan happened. There was a constant series of negotiations happening between the government led by Benesch and the two representatives of the Sudeten German party, Kunt and Sabowski. On the morning of September 5th, Benesch, who is the prime minister of the Czechoslovakian government, invited the German representatives to another negotiating session. And it would be at that point that he would play his kind of final gambit. He would pass them a piece of paper and a pen and say, quote, Please write your party's full demands. I promise you in advance that I will grant them immediately. End quote. Now, I don't know if Benesch knew that what he was doing was probably the perfect tactic, but it was. Because the Sudeten German representatives were under explicit orders that if they did nothing else, they were not supposed to agree to anything. And now they were very concerned that they were being entrapped in some way. Banesh would not be deterred and would say, go on, I mean it, right. And so they started dictating their demands. And it would be termed the fourth plan. And it had everything. Banesh was true to his word. In the document was every single demand that Hinlein had ever made, and Banesh just signed it. Banesh would then go on to convince his cabinet that it was the only path. There would be a later statement to the press that would say it was only done due to, quote, extraordinary pressure from foreign friends. A clear reference to the constant pressure put on the government by the British. Within the Sudeten German leadership, the reaction could best be described as, quote, My God, they have given us everything which was the reaction of Karl Frank, one of the group's leaders. The fourth plan provided full autonomy, the right of the Sudeten Germans to in some ways set their own political boundaries to ensure electoral dominance, and a whole host of other items. Henlein, the person who had made all of those demands over the course of the previous years, was furious. He had crafted those demands, and he believed that they would never be agreed to, and now they had been. Back in Germany throughout September, plans for Case Green continued at an accelerating pace. They had been on pace throughout the summer months for a kickoff date sometime in the later months of 1938, but a new date was set for the invasion of September 27th. This was slightly different from the original plan of October 1st, but was well within the realm of possible. Hitler also wanted the German forces to be able to launch the invasion just two days after it was ordered. And Hitler was also personally involved in the details of Case Green, especially during September, he was kind of changing things and shifting things. For example, the day after Hinlein left from his official visit, uh, Hitler would have another lengthy conversation about Case Green with both Brasich and Keitel. 
During that meeting, Brasich uh, brought up some concerns about the state of German motorized divisions and that perhaps they were not up to the tasks that were placed in front of them as part of how Case Green was written at that time. Hitler, meanwhile, was unhappy with how conservative the plans were. He wanted bolder plans and bolder actions for the invasion. These meetings between Hitler and the military leaders would continue over the following weeks, and over the, just the next few days, they would have the additional aspect of occurring at the same time as the Nuremberg Rally, a celebration of the Nazi party, which would take place from September 5th through the 12th, uh, 1938. The event always had an intoxicating effect on those involved, as really all large rallies do on their participants. You know, this was literally hundreds of thousands of people getting together to celebrate and glorify the Nazi party and Nazi Germany. And for Hitler, it made him impatient with his generals. One night after attending a rally during the day, he would meet with Brasich, Keitel, and the new chief of staff, General Halder. Halder was very much in the conservative camp when it came to invasion planning, something that continued to infuriate Hitler. The united front of Brasich and, and Halder, who both defended Case Green as it was planned at the time, did little to deter Hitler from his position, and they would continue arguing until four in the morning. Eventually, Hitler simply dismissed them and told them that what he demanded had to be done and to stop asking or questioning his decisions. The generals were not at all assisted by the fact that there were some military leaders who actually agreed with Hitler, who, who wanted this more aggressive approach. Both Keitel and his chief of staff, Jodl, had fully bought into this Hitler as military genius idea already by this, you know, September 1938 date. Keitel would take the logical approach and ask the other generals, you know, why do you fight with him when you know that the battle is lost before it's begun? Nobody thinks there is going to be any war over this, so the whole thing wasn't worth all that bitter rearguard action. End quote. Meanwhile, in his private diary, Yodel would write, quote, There is only one undisciplined element in the army, the generals. And in the last analysis, this comes from the fact that they are arrogant. They have neither confidence nor discipline because they cannot recognize the Fuhrer's genius. End quote. While the Nuremberg rally was ongoing, and before Hitler's speech that we will discuss shortly, back in Czechoslovakia, a solution was being found to the problem of the fourth plan or at least the problem from the perspective of the Sudeten German leadership, who wanted to make sure that it was not put in place. On September 7th, a riot would be staged by the Sudeten German party, during which they would allege that one of their deputies had been assaulted by a Czech policeman. Hinlein would use this excuse to formally reject the fourth plan and suspend all ongoing negotiations. The statement would say, quote, the proceedings of the state police are in direct contradictions to the proposals of the government. Now, along with this statement, Hinlein also made several demands about what he expected the government to do uh, for negotiations to sort of restart. Again, this is all about looking sort of reasonable to, to everybody uh, that is outside of Czechoslovakia. The problem is that once again, the government just met his demands. The policeman was dismissed, the local chief of police forced to resign, four police officials were suspended and were due to appear in court. And all of these events, once again, made the Sudeten-German negotiations have to start again because all of their demands were met. And so they were scheduled to resume on September 13th. Back in London, the increase in tensions in the area would have ramifications, with Chamberlain stating on September 11th, that Britain, quote, could not stand aside if a general conflict were to take place in which the security of France might be menaced. There was also a partial mobilization of the British fleet, 
which caused great alarm at the German embassy. These events, all of which seemed to threaten greater violence and perhaps war, were all even before Hitler's Nuremberg speech that would occur on September 12th. The speech would take place in front of 30,000 Nazi party members and was on the heels of the events of what was known as Army Day at the Nuremberg rally, which had involved military parades in front of 100,000 people. These events were kind of the peak of Nazi pageantry and propaganda at these rallies, and so Hitler's speech was kind of the capstone, the, the crescendo of the entire event. In it, he would outline all of the events in Czechoslovakia, at least his version of those events. He would call Banesh a liar and would speak at length about both the oppression he believed the Sudeten Germans were experiencing and the duplicitous nature of the Banesh government. He would say, quote, The conditions in this state, as is generally known, are intolerable. In economic life, seven and a half millions are being systematically ruined and this devoted to a slow process of extermination. This misery of the Sudeten Germans is indescribable. It is sought to annihilate them. As human beings, they are oppressed and scandalously treated in, in an intolerable fashion. The depriving of these people of their rights must come to an end. I have stated that the Reich would not tolerate any further oppression of these three and a half million Germans, and I would ask the statesmen of foreign countries to be convinced that this is not mere rhetoric. End quote. I don't feel like I need to go into too much detail about why a lot of these accusations are completely false <laughs> and a complete misrepresentation of events, or why they are kind of absurd to come from Hitler and Nazi Germany, where those exact events were actually happening to the Jews within Germany at this very moment. I will just say that if you read through the whole speech, which I don't necessarily recommend, there's, there's not a lot of truth to kind of glean from it. It goes on like, you know, this, like what I just read for quite some time, with many, many accusations of unfair treatment and oppression at the hands of the Prague government aimed at the Sudeten Germans. But critically, in all of his accusations and all of his declarations that Germany would no longer stand for such treatment, he did not say that the outcome would be war or that Germany was declaring war. He specifically did not say that. There were certainly threats. And several times throughout the speech, he made it clear that if the Sudeten Germans did not receive some kind of justice, or what he considered some kind of justice, then Germany might ensure that they did. But critically, he did not declare war, which was a real threat in Czechoslovakia and in other governments around Europe, that Hitler would use this opportunity, which was a pretty good opportunity, you know, at kind of the height of his power, the height of his popularity, at least at the time, to announce war. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own? With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. 
We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. After the Nuremberg rally, Hinlein, who had been in Germany for the event, went back to Czechoslovakia with a new list of demands. The most important was simple. The Sudeten areas needed to be straight up given to Germany. At the same time, the situation in Czechoslovakia seemed to be getting out of control. The speech, which had been broadcast on German radio, caused an almost immediate series of demonstrations in the Sudeten areas. Violence against the police began just two hours later, and it turned into wide-scale rioting that would continue for the night. At the same time, fearing that open violence was reaching a point where drastic changes would be made, the Sudeten German party closed their offices in Prague and prepared to leave the city. The total death toll for the night was 23, with 13 of those being policemen and 10 being Sudeten Germans. The government made the decision to declare a state of emergency and instituted martial law in the Sudeten areas. As official presence increased, the Sudeten German groups just kind of melted away due to the fear of the military. What could have resulted in open rebellion was instead a failure, which was seen as something of a missed opportunity by Henlein and the Germans. A full-on uprising would have been an acceptable outcome to both groups, as it would have allowed either the German military to move in under the auspices of maintaining order, or it would have given Henlein and the Sudeten German party more sort of power to negotiate. Instead, Henlein would be forced into another round of simple demands, which would include, quote, the withdrawal of the state police, the repeal of martial law, confinement of the military to barracks and their withdrawal from the streets, and transfer of control of the police and security services to local authorities. These were once again agreed to, but with one important caveat. The government refused to simply leave the area without assurance that there would be some method of maintaining law and order. To get this assurance, they wanted to meet in Prague to discuss the arrangements, but the Sudeten Germans refused. With Hinlein's demands structured as a kind of ultimatum, there was some expectation that this might cause a civil war. While the events in Germany and Czechoslovakia were progressing during the middle of September, in London support was growing for the activation of that Plan Z idea of Chamberlain meeting with Hitler. During September 9th is when things really got moving, with the letter sent to Henderson during that afternoon, which stated that he, quote, had another look at Plan Z, and at the moment are inclining to the view that the moment is approaching when it might be decided to adopt it. End quote. Even within Chamberlain's select group of close associates, there was some concern about the plan, most of which boiled down to the fact that it was a huge personal risk for Chamberlain to involve himself so closely and personally with the troubled political problems occurring in Czechoslovakia. But Chamberlain was adamant that it must be done, saying that, quote, he would never forgive himself if war broke out and he had not tried every expedient for avoiding it. End quote. Nothing would really happen until after the Nuremberg speech on September 12th, which was interpreted in London very positively. At the cabinet meeting the next morning, Chamberlain would say that Hitler had not done anything irrevocable, which meant he had not declared war, 
And so it still seemed possible that negotiations were, you know, a viable option and were maybe even likely to succeed. It would be at this point that the idea for Plan Z was laid out in full to the full cabinet, not, not just Chamberlain's kind of close associates. Chamberlain fully believed that one of the real keys to Plan Z succeeding was the fact that it be a surprise, that it be announced and then occur over a very brief period of time, maybe like a day. And so he used this excuse for why other ministers had not been properly informed of the planning. It was at this time that Chamberlain also introduced the idea of just a straight-up plebiscite to be held in the Sudeten areas, which would decide its fate, and that he was willing to put the British government's support behind the idea. His reasoning for this was that Czechoslovakia would never, quote, have peace so long as the Sudeten Germans were part of the country, end quote. If that was the basis to begin discussion, then the only two possible alternatives, a peaceful or a violent exit of those territories from Czechoslovakia, were kind of the only options, and Chamberlain was firmly of the belief that a peaceful exit would be preferred. Chamberlain did, however, recognize that the plebiscite was the lesser of two evils. It was not a positive development. It was a choice between peace or war, even if that peace was achieved by less than fantastic actions. There was strong opposition to this idea from members of the cabinet, most strongly voiced by Duff Cooper, First Lord of the Admiralty. His primary concern was that what was being suggested simply would not solve the problem, and in fact would not satiate German desires for expansion. If he was correct, by giving over to the Germans more territory, the almost inevitable outcome of, of a plebiscite, you know, if the British supported the plebiscite, the Sudeten areas were gone, then it would make the British situation worse on two counts. First of all, it would remove Czechoslovakia as a meaningful ally due to the territory that would be removed. And second, it would cause every other smaller nation in Europe to believe that the British and French would not be there for them. And so it was probably best to just give in to German demands. Or to summarize, he would argue that, quote, the choice was not between war and a plebiscite, but between war now and war later. Regardless of any possible concerns among the members of the cabinet, the meeting would go ahead, and a message was sent to Henderson in Berlin that he should deliver a message to Ribbentrop the next morning. And so, on September the 14th, this message was delivered in the form of a personal message to Hitler from Chamberlain, which I quoted at the beginning of this episode. It was not directly handed to Ribbentrop, but instead communicated to him by his deputy, because Ribbentrop was in Berchtesgaden, having not come back to Berlin after the events in Nuremberg. The response would come in the afternoon, when Henderson would inform London that Hitler would be, quote, entirely at the disposal of Chamberlain. In Paris, the leaders knew nothing about any proposed meeting, but in the day after Hitler's Nuremberg speech, they would come to the conclusion that basically any solution to the problems in Czechoslovakia that did not involve war would be one that they would accept. They would use the excuse that the French people simply did not support war over the current crisis. This was critical because any threat of war simply had to have the backing of the French, and up to this point, they had firmly stood by their pledge to come to Czechoslovakia's aid if required. They would learn of Chamberlain's plans from Ambassador Phipps after they were already set in stone and already in motion. Back in London, news of what was about to happen started to leak out. News that Chamberlain was flying directly to meet with Hitler would appear in the papers on the morning of September 15th, and Chamberlain would be on the steps of his aircraft not long after. It would be in that position that he would give a short speech, purely basically for soundbite value. He would say, quote, I am going to meet the German Chancellor, because the present situation seems to me to be one in which discussions between him and me may have useful consequences. My policy has always been to try to ensure peace, and the Fuhrer's ready acceptance of my suggestion 
encourages me to hope that my visit to him will not be without results. End quote. Thank you for listening, and I hope you will join me next week as we discuss the events of Chamberlain's first visit with Hitler, which would not go at all according to plan. <laughs>